Good morning. We should let's start. I think I know most people here, but uh, I don't know you and you don't know me. My name is Rod. Um, and uh, we're in the middle of uh, a long series on prayer. And I've been saying this for a while now, but we're coming to the, coming to the end of the second part of the series. In the first part, we looked at people's stories. So we interviewed a lot of people from the community about their experience with prayer. And in this second part, we've been, um, I guess, looking at ideas and how ideas can, um, can be an obstacle to prayer. The ideas that we have of God can be and have been for many of us an obstacle to us praying and being able to pray. Um, and our next phase will be just to look at some practices of prayer and uh, look at how we might perhaps find new practices that speak to the place that we find ourselves now um, and the relationship that we have with God now. Um, so in this, in this part of the series, we've really been trying to uh, reframe prayer and move away from the question of whether prayer works, that we will get back to this and Ask instead, how does God work in the world? And we've looked at many of the ideas that shape our sense of how God works. And we've realized that many of those ideas, um, perhaps ideas we had when we were younger, ideas that perhaps comforted us when we were younger, as we have, have grown, have started to feel less and less comfortable to us. Um, one of the ways that we've tried to, to frame many of those ideas is with the, the image of Zeus, the image of an all-powerful God, all-controlling God um, that can give great comfort, the idea that God is in control of every single thing. That can be really reassuring. But for a lot of us as... Um, as we've experienced pain, as we've seen suffering, as we've had more and more questions enter our lives, um, that image of the all-controlling God has seemed more and more like um, perhaps a monster rather than something that comforts us. And it's also become an image that we find harder and harder to reconcile with what we see in Jesus. Um, And this has made it hard for many of us to pray especially as we've, I guess, lost a sense of how God works in the world and have perhaps struggled to find a new understanding of how God works in the world to replace it and a new understanding of how God works in the world to to pray to or pray with. So what we've been trying to do in this part of the series is to filter a lot of the ideas that we have of God, God as Zeus, God as Santa, God as cosmic vending machine, God as disappearing dad, um, we try to filter them through the lens of Jesus and allow Jesus to help us decide what we can affirm and what we should reject about the many images of God that we, that we have and that perhaps we've grown up with. 
And um, what we've been using as part of this is the Abba prayer. Um, so we've been working our way through the, the parts of this prayer and looking at um, what they tell us about how God works in the world. And I guess the picture that has been emerging for us um, is that what we see in this prayer is not a God um, that we ask to do particular things for us. Um, we've decided that prayer is not a spell to make a powerful genie do our bidding, but that prayer is instead an invitation to share in the divine life itself, a window into the inner life of God. So in the Abbot prayer, God is not giving us the tools that we need to manipulate a powerful God to do what we want, but Jesus is giving us instead a pair of glasses that allows us to start seeing the world as God sees it, to see it as God wants it to be so that we can start to be co-creators with God of that world. And so our, our prayer, in a sense, can go with the grain of God's will against, rather than against it. So that's a very brief, I guess, summary of this part of the series so far. And um, for those who've been here every week, that will be like, yeah, okay, okay. And for others who are here for the first time, it will be, hang on, I have so many questions raised by that. But I'll, I'll pause just here for a second just to see if there's any um, anything that people want to ask or to mention or to clarify about that stuff so far and also so I can take a sip of water. Um, In the last few weeks we've been talking about um, the line, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And, And last week Shane looked at this in the context of Jesus' words from the cross in the Gospel of Luke. Abba, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Um, now, there are, there, I think there are probably a few theys included in they know not what they are doing. Um, Pilate, the Jewish religious authorities, there are probably a bunch of, of people that Jesus is including in that prayer. But the... The group that Shane focused on last week were the Roman soldiers. And I guess he asked us to engage with our imaginations in their experience, Um, Roman soldiers. Think about how brutalized they must have been, living lives characterized by constant violence. Soldiers who had seen and done terrible things. Jesus sees that they no longer know what it's like to feel the pain of the victim. They literally know no other way. They don't know what mercy and forgiveness could do in the world. And Shane invited us to imagine these soldiers standing face to face with Jesus on Judgment Day, realizing that despite everything, despite the fact that they themselves had crucified the Son of God, they were still loved 
and forgiven and invited to restoration, even as he hung there on the cross. And we're invited to reflect on the fact that in in a way this is all of us. All of us are perpetrators and victims. All of us find ourselves stripped of our humanity by the things that we have done and the things that have been done to us. All of us find ourselves numbed to the pain of others because of the pain that we have given and the pain that we have received. And so in the Abba prayer, in his cry from the cross, Jesus invites us to participate in a different way, the way of mercy and forgiveness deeply know mercy ourselves and to know what it is to be the beloved of God despite everything, to know what it is to be forgiven. And also to to know that we are invited to be co-creators in the remaking of this world. Our prayers are part of this co-creation, God longing for a world of justice and mercy and inviting us to feel the same to invite God into the process just as God invites us into the process. So that was last week. And um, today, I guess I just want to um, add a few things that are kind of connected to that picture in, in a few different ways. So Shane created a kind of a beautiful um well-connected image for us last week, and I'm just going to sort of put some arrows in to various points of things that occurred to me in the last few weeks. Um, so the first thing I want to do this morning is to um, to say a little bit about the question of what God can and cannot do. So in this in this series we've we've really wanted to underline the fact that God's essence is love. God's essence is love and not power. And that perhaps the answer to the question of how God can be good and loving and yet there can be so much evil in the world is is perhaps that there are things that God cannot do, that perhaps we need to let go of a God of complete control of everything, a God who knows everything that is going to happen, for whom every part of a, every, everything that is going to happen is part of a plan worked out in every detail from the beginning of time. Perhaps that's something that we need to let go of and perhaps that's, that's something that we don't see in the God revealed in Jesus. But, but today, I want to say that while for some of us, these are definitely things that we need to let go of, if we are to hold on to a God, the idea of a God of love, if we are going to rediscover a place for prayer in our lives, it would be a tragedy if other people in this community, people who don't feel the need to let go of some of those things, started to feel coerced into believing in a non-coercive God. Ultimately, 
God is not a problem to be solved, but a source of life and love. And the only reason to talk about God at all is to try to cut away the bonds that prevent us from being carried away by the flow of that life and love. The contemplative monk Thomas Merton said that trying to solve the question of God is like trying to see your own eyes. The ideas that we are exploring in this part of the series, the ideas about God. are not the obvious solution that we've come to to the problem of God. It's just a way of us exploring ideas to try to create a space to re-encounter God. The theologian Roger Olson um, said this, which I think is great. Every theological proposal has problems. I tell my students when confronted with theological options and you must decide between them and all are live options in terms of revelation, reason, tradition and experience. Choose the one that has the problems you can live with. They all have problems. In a way, we are, many of us here are people who, for all sorts of reasons, have just found ourselves unable to live with the image of God that many in the communities that we came from can still live with. And we've found that those images of God were filled with problems that we could not live with. And we've come together in this community, I guess, to to begin a process of exploration. And I think the fact that we're doing it collectively is an incredibly important part of that. But to begin a process of, of exploration where we can find images of God with problems that we can live with because they all have problems. But recognizing that Our goal, the end of this process of exploration is not to find the right ideas. It's not to find the right system that enables us to solve the problem of God. Because God, the thing that I've come to believe incredibly strongly over the last year or two is that God can not and never can be an it that we can work out. God is always you. The said this before, but there's a Jewish theologian called Martin Buber that describes God as the thou, the you, that can never be an it. God actively, actively wants not to be solved. God cannot allow God's self to be fully worked out because that would mean that we turn God into an object that we can then put away rather than a person that is remains a mystery. It's like 
It's like any relationship, any relationship of intimacy. Once you reach the point where you feel like you've worked the other person out, then the relationship is dead. And it's the same with God. Some of us, for a range of reasons, are more comfortable with paradox and mystery than others. And if you are able to hold together the idea that God is in complete control with the idea of human freedom and the reality of evil, then it's not my job or Shane's job or the job of this community to convince you otherwise. As the prophet Micah reminds us, what God requires of us is not to work God out. Don't worry about that yet. But this one, yeah. What does God require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? One of the fantastic things about Jesus saying, Abba, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, is the liberation of knowing that God loves us and embraces us despite the fact that we don't have a clue what's going on here. Don't know what we're doing. Our thoughts are so much shaped by where we happen to be born, the time we happen to grow up in. And if, if being the beloved of God, being embraced by God, being able to encounter God, being able to live a life of participation with God needed us to work everything out, to have sorted everything out, to have a systematic theology with all the wrinkles ironed out of it, then none of us would ever get there. I was reminded of all this um, this week as I read um, this book, Hallelujah Anyway, by Anne Lamott, the large print edition. I'd recommend that. The letters are really big. Uh, It's a book about mercy. And as I read it, I was constantly reminded of the idea that we keep coming back to, that Jesus invites us to see the world in a completely different way, to put on a new pair of glasses and to see a world of justice and mercy and kindness. The world it is God's will to have done on earth. Now she says this, kindness towards others and radical kindness to ourselves, buy us a shot at a warm and generous heart, which is the greatest prize of all. Do you want this or do you want to be right? She goes on to say that the problem is that I love to be and, and so often am right. But believing you are right depends on cold theological arguments where frequently there is no oxygen. I want to apologize. We did a time of confession today in the Iona um, liturgy. And I I want to apologize if any of the theological arguments over the last month or two, any of the, the ideas have sucked the oxygen out of the room for you. Um, In her book, she mentions this cartoon. 
for those listening to the podcast, it's two dogs in suits at a bar. I think one of them's got a martini and one of them's got some kind of cocktail in a highball. Um, it's not enough that we succeed. Cats must also fail. <laughs> I'm sorry if you have felt a bit like a cat. I mean, we do have two in the community already, but um, sorry if you felt. You feel great, yeah. In an amazing twist of irony, cat is a dog. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which, which, which cocktail are you drinking, cat? Both of them. Excellent. But yeah, the last thing that we want to do in this community is, is to create this sense of dogs and cats, yeah? that we've, we've been the cats in our own communities of origin, and so now we've got our own community where we get to be the dogs. It's not the point. And if, if that's what we end up doing here, then we've, we've completely missed it. It should be the exact opposite of our intention, to create a space where all of us with God's help, can move into the realm of mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness. Because it's, it's that experience, it's not getting our ideas right, but it's that experience of mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness that is what is required for us to start participating in this vision of God for, for a new earth. This is Anne Lamott's description of mercy. It's radical kindness. It means offering or being offered aid in desperate straits. Mercy is not deserved. It involves absolving the unabsolvable, forgiving the unforgivable. Mercy brings us to the miracle of apology, given and accepted, to unashamed humility when we have erred and forgotten. I have another one here too. Oh, no, that's just first communion. <laughs> he says, when, when we manage a flash of mercy, when we manage a flash of mercy, especially for a truly awful person, we experience a new point of view, a point of view that can make us gasp. That's the point of all of this. It's not to reorganize the ideas in your head so that you can sort it all out. It's to try to create a space where you can get your ideas out of the way and give and receive mercy. I'm going to pause here. Um, that making any, I'm hesitant to use the word sense because <laughs> sense is not the point. But um, is that making any sense to you? Any any thoughts, reflections from either cats or dogs? This is cat, everyone. I always have a thought, um, <laughs> always. 
Uh, but that Thomas Merton quote about um, trying to figure God out or whatever is like trying to see your own eyes. That's so great because it's like if you did want to see your own eyes, you'd have to look into a mirror and then you'd be faced with the image of yourself. And I think the times where I have felt the worst or most alienated or whatever in my life is when I've felt like I'm a problem to be solved as well. So I just really liked that image because I think I engage with God or prayer or whatever when I see it as more of a human thing. Thanks, Kat. Anyone else? sure if there's a comment or a question. Um, yeah, it's very broad. Um, mercy, radical kindness. I'm just thinking as, as that sort of... I'm trying to think in practical terms. Is that sort of people we see or is it something much broader than that? Like when you see something on TV and it's like, oh, you know, I can't stand that person or how could they do that or whatever? You know, is it a could be a global thing too, to react to, to what you see and what you do. Yeah, something I heard this week was talking about, you know, that the, the truest thing about you is that you are the beloved of God. This is the truest thing about you. But that that is not an individual or individualistic statement. That is a universal statement. And so the truest thing about each person on this planet is that they are the beloved of God. And so that has incredible implications. It's incredibly good news to victims and the marginalised, but it's incredibly confronting news to, to those of us who happen to be complicit in all sorts of systems of violence and exploitation. Because if the people that are the victims of those systems that we are complicit in are also the beloved of God, if that is the truest thing about them, then yeah, that, I think that calls us to all sorts of, of practical action. Um, all sorts of um, of radical change in our own lives, all sorts of of activism and activity to to be a part of God's vision for that beloved status of each person to be honoured. Yeah, just that concept. Yeah, I was just thinking. I think it's related. Um, I was just thinking about how mercy sort of seems to be related to really holding on to the humanity in every single person, no matter what. And I was thinking about on my Facebook feed um, over the last sort of 48 hours, I've watched people um, talking about Chappelle Corby. It's obviously all over the news. But, um, yeah, I've really been trying to think about her as a person when she's become such a... I don't know, she's become so dehumanised in the process and a bit of a joke and, you know, we've become so sort of familiar with her and getting into arguments about whether we think she's guilty or innocent. But I've just been trying to think about what it must be like for her after so many years coming back and, yeah, what it must be like for her as a person, whether I think that, you know, whether I've got ideas that she's a bogan or that she's smart or that she's stupid or that she's guilty or that she's a sellout, like... Stripping all of that aside, what does it mean to think about her as a human going through something? Um, so, I don't know. And I think when I try and not just think of her as a name and something that 
you know, selling magazines, like I'm able to feel some kind of nurturing compassion towards her as a person. So, I don't know, I think it's just a challenge to try and humanise everyone, whether they're possible or not. Yeah, I, I heard like, yeah, pretty much every comment I make starts with I heard this week. But, um, uh, yeah, just someone talking about the face of the other and the fact that um, we experience God through encountering agape, encountering God's love in, in the faces of other people um, and that 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 idea that in, in each face that we encounter, whether that's on the television or in real life, in each face that we encounter, we are encountering the image of God, the beloved of God, and that, um, yeah, the radical implications of that for the way that we engage with everyone and and anyone. I mean, um, yeah, that that people like Peter Dutton and people like Donald Trump are the beloved of God, that the the truest thing about them is that they are the beloved of God. It's pretty confronting. Um, Um, So the only, the the other thing that I want to touch on um, this week um, it's from a, a podcast called The Liturgists. Um, I was listening to an episode on spiritual trauma um, this week, and um, it brought home to me how many of us have been abused by our pastors, have experienced trauma at the hands of pastors or church communities. And um, I guess just carrying on from what we've been saying, I really don't want to replicate that here. Um, Shane and I don't want to be soft versions of abusive pastors that you've had in the past. Um, we are sharing stories, sharing thoughts, hoping to get your stories, hoping to get your thoughts, but we don't want to create a new orthodoxy that excludes. Um, and we don't want you to be focused on what we need you to be. Um, we don't want you to to be working out what you need to say to keep us happy or to feel like you need to focus on what you need to say to stay part of this community. Um, it's a very delicate balance, I guess, for us to to share things that we think might be liberating without say, seeming to say at the same time that if you don't find those ideas liberating, then there's no place for you here. Um, so forgive us when we get this balance wrong. Um, and and yeah, please believe me when I say that embracing certain ideas is not what this community is about. It's about love and mercy. And us, I guess, training each other in seeing each other as the beloved of God. Um, the other thing that that came out of that podcast was the fact that um, 
They said they get a lot of emails from people who have experienced incredible trauma at the hands of um, their communities and their pastors. And the emails almost always end with the writer asking why God feels so distant. And they talked themselves and with with, um, therapists about the fact that trauma shuts down the part of the brain that can connect, the part of the brain that connects with the self, that connects with the other, and that connects with God. Um, so if that's you, if, if you feel like you have... Ex- oh, sorry, Jackie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good question. Um, is that a term that you've come across before? I mean, we're, we're talking about... I guess, n- nothing necessarily to, to do with physical abuse or, I mean, I guess it's all interconnected, but we're just talking about, I guess, an experience of extreme um, pain and disempowerment in the face of what you have been um, taught and what you have been told um, in your communities of origin. Uh, I guess parts told that central parts of your identity are not welcome in that community, Um, being told that um, your thoughts and your intuitions um, cannot be trusted. Um, So I guess it's a whole range of things that might lead you to feel like there are parts of yourself that you can't bring to that community, but also to literally experience um, trauma, a sense of... um, powerlessness, a sense of um, deep distress. Yeah, Jane wanted to share something. Yeah, I think that this, the spiritual part of it is for, you know, for parents, for teachers, for all kinds of people, they hold an enormous amount of power with the authority that they carry and the role that they fill. Um, the danger with pastors and people um, in kind of spiritual oversight is they carry this nuance with that is that what I say God says as well. And so whereas a teacher might be able to say, you know, you'll never amount to anything, um, you're wrong, um, you should do this, you should do that. Uh, the danger with spiritual authority is that it carries this profound moral weight as well of um, if you think that your spiritual oversight is somehow connected to God in a way that you aren't, then the leverage that they have to... Um, put you offside with the eternal um, is just so much more volatile and so much more. And if you disagree, then you disagree with God um, and you're being rebellious or um, especially for communities that believe in eternal conscious torment. Um, the idea, you know, I had a conversation with someone the other week who you know, stopped believing in God a long, long time ago and um, really felt like they needed a break from um, organized church, but they still believed in hell, <laughs> and so weren't willing to stop going to church in case they ended up in hell. Even though they don't, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in spiritual nourishment. But that, the trigger of that fear factor, that hot, that hook into you is so so strong. Um, yeah, the moralizing leverage you have when you somehow represent God as well is um, something we should be very very careful with. Yeah. Did you want to say anything else, Jackie? Okay, right, yeah.
Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for letting me know. Yeah. Oh, there are hands. <laughs> I'm blind in this eye. Yeah. Um, I just, I guess it's just a bit of a personal journey to that I can relate to what Shane's saying because um, in previous communities that I've been involved with, I felt like what was being preached must be what God is saying. And so taking that as literally from God and sort of feeling like, um, yeah, parts of your identity you can't acknowledge or be yourself because that not what they're saying is correct or and and um, whenever you question anything, then that's seen as really bad. And um, I was told, you know, because I wanted to move to another community, that that couldn't be from God. And, um, you know, I'd come to them to say, you know, I've really appreciated this community and I wanted to acknowledge that, but I'm wanting to move elsewhere. And just that, that kind of idea that you have to sort of go through dismantling some of the structures in your brain almost because you get kind of, they get set into patterns I think you know, there's that idea of in your brain how you've got like a, if a thought goes on a path, it becomes like a kind of a groove in your brain, <laughs> and you know it's a process that you go through of kind of dismantling some of that stuff. And um, yeah, I, I've definitely I can definitely relate to that. And and ha- having that wrestle, you know how Jacob wrestled with uh, who God is, and I've definitely had that a couple of times in relation to um, <laughs> yeah, just different aspects of of identity and. Um, yeah, realizing and when God broke through that and realizing that's actually that God is not who I thought he was is a real kind of profound thing to go through. And I recommend that wrestle even though it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, I um, just thought I'd share that. <laughs> Thank you. Are there any other hands on my blind side? Here? No, okay, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks, Anna. Um, So I guess I wanted to encourage you to listen to that podcast if you want. You can come and get the details if that's something that you feel like you want to explore. But also that if you feel like you've had that experience and God has felt distant for a long time and prayer has felt impossible, then there's a good idea that sorting out your ideas about God is not the solution for you at all, Um, at least not initially that the solution might be seeing someone who is um, skilled and experienced in trauma therapy and helping your body and your mind-body system to heal um, so that you can find yourself in a place where maybe you can start to re-engage with your ideas about God, where there can be a place for that. Uh, But I think for for some of us, maybe this is... um, yeah, the, the first and most important step is not wrestling with ideas, but um, yeah, getting help with what has been what has been done to us and how that has uh, literally changed our brains in ways that need to be to be addressed. Um, and well, I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit in the past, but um, it would be a real tragedy if we had people in this community that. Um, are wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with the ideas that we're we're sharing and finding themselves making no progress at all in terms of their sense of intimacy with God or their ability to pray and feeling like the problem might lie with them, whereas in fact it's it's to do with experiences that 
that are not their fault, but which they need help with before ideas are capable of being engaged with. Um, I hope that, sorry, that was a bit of a ramble, but I, I hope that makes sense. And um, Jackie, if, if, if that is something for you, if that's been a trigger for you today or it's brought up some, some issues for you, Jackie's more than happy to, um, for you to talk to her about it. Um, you can talk to me as well. Um, you can just pretend that we're talking about the Liturgist podcast. That's fine. Um, I guess I just want to um, to acknowledge, uh, you know, having the word "he" referred to um, God referred to as "he" just then. It just it just um, reminded me, I guess, of, of how much of our experiences of trauma are are to do with patriarchy, are to do with um, notions of male authority that we've grown up with in our churches. It was so beautiful to have that third song today, um, How She Loves Us. And I, I find uh, ha- having two daughters, I just find myself crying instantly whenever God is referred to as she because it's so beautiful and liberating for me. Um, and I think about how difficult it was for me to survive my church of origin as a male given those notions of, of male authority and patriarchy that that, that shaped my community, and it just, I shudder to think about what it would be like for my girls to have the experience that I had as a child, Um, and I just think it's so important for us to be in touch with all of those things, Um, and start referring to God as she a lot more. (laughs) Sorry? Oh, I'm going to love next week. Hooray. Um, and, yeah, hopefully, financially, as you can see on the tables in front of you, we're moving to a place where, where we can genuinely seek out um, a woman to be part of um, our leadership team because it's just insane <laughs> to, to have the leadership team that we have given the community that we have and given what we believe about God. So let's let's keep pushing towards that. Um, hmm. I was going to read this great thing. Well, we can have a little vote, democracy. I was going to read a few pages of this book about the woman at the well. Um, or we can just have communion. Anyone have strong feelings? <laughs> read it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry for those that didn't want me to read it. Those were the first voices. Do you want to read it, Cat? Hey, Cat. Cat, do you want to read it? Yeah. That's all right. There is some shit in here, so it's fine. You're just warming up to the language. It's Anne Lamott, after all. Hmm. Okay, you just... <laughs> Shut up. I follow Anne Lamott on Twitter. Um, and she's the best all the time. Um, so there's nice old Jesus one afternoon sitting near Jacob's well, pooped when a Samaritan woman approached to draw water, a dirty, disgusting Samaritan. Why was 
Why was the woman there at such an odd time? All the good women came early when it was still cool. Woman who wouldn't go near her because she was a prostitute or a sex worker. Jesus asked her for a drink of water from her vile Samaritan utensil. You just didn't do this. Jesus and the Jews went to elaborate lengths to observe purity and his eating with hookers and tax collectors was one of the things the Pharisees later charged him with. It's mercy beyond imagining that he would even approach her and then create a container for the two of them and then remain in conversation with her. It's the longest conversation Jesus has with any one person in the Gospels. The woman said, let me get this straight. You want me to get you water? Unclean Samaritan me? What's up with that? With a Jew wanting water from a Samaritan? She insisted that the rift between Jews and Samaritans could not be healed. He said that the time would come when they would all worship together. He said that she would learn to worship God instead, in spirit and in truth, the opposite of the material world, not degraded bodies and segregated temples, but what is real, heartful, integral, merciful, eternal. It would no longer be, I'll worship God here and you stay over there. He meant you didn't compartmentalize life or yourself into two bins, into good or bad, clean, dirty, us, them. Jesus said Samaritans would be treated with honesty and fairness. This blew her mind. Jesus told her, now go call your husband. He knew she didn't have one. He wanted her to move out of the lie into authenticity, but first she had to admit to how she was living her life. People in recovery would call it taking a thorough and fearless moral inventory and then sharing that with another person. Jesus offered himself as a loving listener, a non-judging ear. He invited her to come clean. His invitation was a call to a new life, not to be a receptacle for men, but rather a carrier of the good news. There was a huge love loose in the world, of which she was part and parcel. This is the kingdom of God. It was an invitation to be changed, to have a complete psychic change from the ultimate outsider to welcomed beloved. She said, oh, no thanks. I love this. She kept lying. Jesus did not stomp away. He stayed with her. Such mercy and patience. He countered by saying that she wouldn't be getting water at noon unless something was seen as being wrong with her. That must have hurt. So Jesus said, let's talk about that. That's where you'll start from, from what is real instead of from the lie. He had to badger her into accepting a call to a sweeter life. The woman finally confessed to what her life was like, and he said, well done, girlfriend, welcome. He told her about a spring within her, a well that wouldn't run dry, a holy breath that connected her to the whole, the illimitable, the illimitable to love. She was transformed. Then she did what the sober women who finished me out of the bad who fished me out of the bad waters did. She told others. 
She left the well and the confidence that she would be welcome, having just tasted this welcome, the great shalom, or that if she wasn't, it absolutely didn't matter. She didn't need the approval of the rough men. She had the gold ticket in her pocket. She told her family, neighbours, former clients about this strange man she'd met at Jacob's well. Why would they believe the town hooker? Because they could see with their own eyes an astonishing transformation and they wanted what she had. That's my prayer for us today, that we'll become a community where people want what we have. So I know I, I spoiled it before by showing this, showing this slide, but we're going to have communion. It was a surprise. Um, any final thoughts before we do? Um, don't forget... If you want to talk to Jackie afterwards or talk to me, um, you're welcome to. So what I want us to do um, with communion this morning, um, we're such a talky church, so wordy. Um, we're disembodied so much of the time. Um, we're Western after all. But we, we are more than brains, more than ideas. In fact, our brains are more than ideas. Um, and one of the things that I really want us to do in the, in the final part of the series is to um, explore some embodied forms of prayer, some non-wordy forms of prayer, because I think it's very important for people like us. And for people like us.